Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my GaudiMitzBez22.com podcasts on Podbeam and YouTube videos. Uh, I am Dr. Larry Chapp. I am joined by uh, a former student of mine who is also a friend and now uh, a doctor herself teaching. She's assistant professor of theology uh, at Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts. You've been there, what, three years now, four years? Four. This is my fourth four year. Years. Assumption so the, University. So in a couple of years, you'll have the sword of Damocles hanging over your head as you apply for <laughs> tenure. Uh, so all the collective prayers of my audience should go your way as that process is that process. The non-academics, I don't think people who've never worked in a university setting, I don't think understand just how traumatic an experience applying for tenure is. Because here's the deal. A lot of people, know, if you don't get tenure, you get basically one year and then you're fired and you're out the door. Uh, and then you say, OK, well, I'll just go someplace else where there aren't that many jobs out there for starters. And then number two, uh, if you've been denied tenure someplace, that's like the scarlet letter affixed to your forehead. You know, it's like loser, loser. <laughs> it's going to be the very first question anybody asks you in an interview like, oh, I see you were denied tenure at Assumption College. <laughs> So this will not happen to you. You have publications and so on. So you will get tenure. So it's uh, not Let's hope a that's a prophecy. Yes, it, I, I, I prophesy it. I prophesy <laughs> it. Anyway, enough bantering, enough bantering. We're going to get to the subject of the day. What, what, uh, what we're going. This is Rachel's suggestion. I just emailed her the other day and said, hey, let's do a podcast. What do you want to talk about? I I don't know what I suggested something. What did I suggest? I can't even we can talk about D.L. Schindler. Um, oh, yeah. Da da David yeah. L. Schindler's legacy. I'm going to be discussing that in a couple of weeks with David C. Schindler and Hauser and a few others. One other Jeremy Beer. Uh, anyway, what we're going to be talking about today is gender. And, you know, it's all in the news these days. Gender, 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 identity, gender, this don't misgender me and all that kind of stuff, lest you get canceled. And uh, so I, I just finished reading for those who would like to know a little bit more. Rachel knows a lot about this. Rachel actually is not just a theologian, but a philosopher and a metaphysician. Uh, got her doctorate at the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C., uh, which is a heavily metaphysical outfit down there. OK, and, and much to the annoyance of some, but to the joy of others. My joy. I, I love that stuff. All that metaphysical gobbledygook. So if you want to know more about her thought, at least we can start with the fact that she has an article in Church Life Journal which is an online journal from March 18th, 2021. I guess that's how you spent your COVID time <laughs> uh, writing articles for Church Life. 2021 was when we were coming out of the fog, I guess. But anyway, um, so let's let's begin with uh, the way you begin that article, which is uh, what the heck is gender? What is the definition of gender? What, what, what are we talking about? Everybody throws that word around. But, you know, in the words of, you know, Indigo Montoya and Princess Bride, I don't know if you know what that word means. You keep on using that word. I don't think, yeah, exactly. think it does. All right. So uh, what, what does this word mean that you think it does? Yeah, that's a pretty, that's pretty apt, actually. Um, I mean, the answer is, you know, the answer that, like, everybody other than academics and certainly my students hates, which is, it depends, right? Um, and, but part of the reason it depends is because 
um, a lot of people in who, like, I'll refer to these people as gender ideologues. And what I mean by gender ideologues, just to define that term um, up front, is people who think that, uh, quote unquote, biological sex, and I don't love that phrase, but we can talk about why I don't love that phrase um, in a second. But biological sex is different than gender or can be different than gender. Um, and so it seems to me, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area. Um, I am, as you just said, a metaphysician. And just because of the confusion of this area and like because this is seems to me one of the great issues of our time, like I've kind of dipped my toe in the waters a little bit um, here yeah. and there. But, you know, if you if you want to. I should say, you know, if you if you really want to sort of um, get a book like treatment of this, Abigail Favale's The Genesis of Gender, um, which is at Ignatius Press, is probably the book to read. She does a great job sort of exploring all options there. I, I, I have that book. What about this book, too? Michelle Schumacher, Metaphysics, yes, and, gender. Metaphysics and Gender. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. That's on my list. I'm um, excited to. I haven't read um, but, I haven't read it either, but I saw it and I know she's yeah. into Balthazar and stuff like that. And I thought, well, she's probably pretty good. And, and it has the reason what made me think of it is there's a blurb on the back from Abigail Favale, who says this right. book is a must read. And Angela Franks, who says this is a tour de force. Yeah. And Angela Franks has done a lot of work in this area as well. So anyway, I interrupted. Go yeah. ahead. You were talking no, about okay. uh, Favale. So. Yeah. So anyway, Abby Favale's book is probably if you want a sort of a book length treatment about how we got to where we got to what like gender is. That's the one she used at. to be a feminist. Right. And then she converted. Yeah. Yes. Um, and but I'll just say for our purposes, um, just a mini a mini history. So, um, you know, the the sort of mother of feminism or one of the kind of matriarchs of feminism is um, Simone de Beauvoir, right? And she oh, yeah. wrote a book called um, The Second I Sex. haven't heard anybody mention her in decades. <laughs> and in um, in The Second Sex, Simone de Beauvoir says, um, she famously, this is probably her most quoted line, right? And that um, uh, no one is, but rather becomes a woman, right? Like that someone has to become a woman. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think this is what she meant by that phrase um, at all, but a lot of people and probably most prominently Judith Butler um, <clears throat> have taken that to mean that, right, to be female is not necessarily to be a woman. Rather, right, to be a woman is kind of socially constructed, more or less. And in the first kind of like, um, waves of this separation of sex from gender, there was just this idea, it, feminists, as I understand it, and again, I'm not like an expert in feminism, but um, as I understand it, feminists sort of use this idea to sort of say, like, what we as a society think being a woman is, is a socially constructed phenomenon, right? Um, and, you know, this is back in, you know, I mean, like, women couldn't, like get their own credit cards until like the 1970s, right? So like there there is some like legitimate criticism about what was happening, like women being kind of their own like agents in the world, essentially. And or the, or the fact that the if you wanted to work outside of the home, you were confined to being a nurse, a teacher, or a secretary. Right. Exactly. And so um 
So at, at first, this phrase from de Beauvoir was used to mean that the way that we socially understand womanhood, or uh, I'll just stick with womanhood, right, um, is that's kind of like, that's very socially and societally constructed. Again, probably something to that point. And um, one of the sort of frustrating parts of the discourse, I'll just mention this right now, and maybe we can come back to it. But one of the most like the frustrating parts of the discourse right now, it seems to me is like people like ignoring that there may have ever, ever been inequalities or problems in the sex relations, essentially. Right. Um, but then what that has morphed into is not that our understanding of womanhood is socially constructed, but rather womanhood at all as a phenomenon, as a like that this thing called womanhood, right, um, is essentially um, something that one can opt into, right, or out of at, at as male or female, basically, right? And so that to become a woman, right, is some sort of like innate feeling about oneself, right? Um, and that could happen if one is male or if one is female. And so this is where you get the the um, extreme rupture, we might say, between sex and gender, right? And so in some of my um, work on this, which is again, not super extensive, I, I feel like I sort of enter into the field as an outsider, but I, I, I call gender a counter concept to sex, meaning that like if sex what? is to, uh, to, to, to sex, uh, oh, yeah, to sex. Yeah. If sex yeah. is like an immutable characteristic, which like people are even going so far now as to say that that's not true. Right. But if sex is an immutable characteristic, gender is this kind of fluid, you pick it, it corresponds with like your inner feelings about yourself. Um, and so, but I mean, what's interesting, and again, I learned this from Abby, um, Abby Favale, right? Gender just, what, originally it was just used um, because the Victorians didn't like to say the word sex about like, about, quote unquote, biological sex, because because of its overlap with sexual intercourse, like how we refer to sexual yeah, intercourse. Yeah. So, so we really just started using, gender was a way to describe like our language, right? Like that certain nouns are masculine or feminine, right? Um, which again, in English is lost. We don't have that. But in pretty much every other language, that's there, right? And um, and so a lot of, in English, because, I mean, it's sort of like this weird historical, you know, like coincidence or something, right? Where because sex could refer to sexual intercourse and because sex could refer to what we call biological sex, right? People just started using the word gender to in polite society, right? To refer to someone being a woman or a man. And then, and now we've got this like, this complete um, sort of separation of the terms, which is, uh, yeah, a very strange okay. historical phenomenon. That is strange. Uh, so at the, the bottom line is it's it's an almost impossible term uh, to define, at least up front, before one has started digging deeper into the issue. It's it's one of those words that we all think we know what it means until somebody says, as you say later in your article, like Socrates would ask, what? Well, OK, if you know what it means, what is it? What is it? what is it? Yeah, now, I'm not. For example, I'm not a huge fan of Matt Walsh at all or his videos, but I do enjoy watching him go up and down streets interviewing 
people who are, are pro transgenderism and you know and and say okay what is a woman and nobody can answer you know nobody can answer that so he's essentially this i mean he's got all kinds of baggage but that's essentially what he's doing this socratic thing it's okay you you you're a biological male you say you're a woman please tell me what's a woman then and then they can't yeah i i do want to shout out about Matt Walsh. I mean, I watched What Is a Woman, and it is. I mean, it's very funny at some points, it's, right? It's and also, like, he's a very funny guy. I just yeah. have problems with some of his other political. Oh no, and it's it's very pointed in other yeah. ways, right? Especially when he just kind of lets like gender ideologues like talk in circles. I mean, it, it's it, those are kind of the most revealing moments it yeah. seems to me in that documentary. However, I I I wonder I about this, right? So there's a woman named Kelly J. Keene in the UK, um, who she kind of came to prominence around 2014, 2015, and for exactly this question, right? Um, because she she um, rented a billboard, and it just said, well, it was the dif- dictionary definition of woman, woman, adult, human, female, right? And so she, Kelly G. Keene is actually the first person to kind of push this issue of what is a woman? And I was a little bit disappointed in Walsh's documentary that he didn't give like any credit, you know, to to her. Keen is tends to be labeled as a turf, right? A trans exclusive radical feminist. And so, and then of, of course, when we get to this this word turf, some people consider that right, um, an epithet, some people consider it a badge of pride, right? Um, and um, but yeah, the the turfs quote unquote, especially in England, were were actually some of the first people to be kind of pushing this question. Well, wait, you say you're that you're a woman. Like, what is a woman, actually? People like J.K. Right. Rowling, uh, Camille Paglia, you know. Yeah. Rowling is like because of her fame, she is kind of the lightning rod, you know, um, especially because I guess, I mean, it seems to me a lot of Harry Potter readers seems like think that like she's betrayed them somehow and and thinking that men can't become women and women can't become men. Um, but yeah, so there, there's this whole, and, and this is a, an interesting phenomenon too, that um, Mary Harrington and Nina Power, Nina Power works for Compact and she actually has an article on Compact um, called um, Turf Island. And, and so um, they both have commented on the fact that turfs actually seem to have like gain a little bit more traction in England than they do in America. Um, and my understanding of Mary Harrington's thesis is that she thinks that like the national organization of women now, right. Being so, and like Planned Parenthood being so um, ascendant in this kind of area of like gender studies and, and feminism um, has prevented um, women who, again, could would be classified or could be classified as TERFs, trans-exclusive radical feminists, from really gaining any traction in America, whereas they do in England. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it just strikes me, and I, I want to get back into your Church Life Journal article in a second. Yeah. One of the things that always struck me is is that that the feminist movement should be more up in arms against some elements of, of the gender ideology, because yeah. it does in many ways represent the erasure of, of womanhood as something specific unto itself, however one wants yes. to define that. So, for example, and th- and that stereotypes, gender stereotypes that feminists fought for decades to overcome 
are suddenly not like when Bruce Jenner becomes Caitlyn Jenner. The first thing he does is to get big boobs, put on a pencil dress, uh, eyelashes, long costume jewelry, earrings, long flowing hair that was a wig, lipstick, makeup, high heels, stilettos. I mean, and, and, and you know, this is what it means now to be a woman. Right. Is, is to dress. And no one could say, well, that's just the way he wanted to dress. No, this happens all the time. It's a hyper feminization uh, in a stereotypical way that takes place. All right. Once the, the man becomes a woman, so to speak. And and yet that is extremely stereotypical. And oh, it's so offensive. <laughs> it's like, I mean, yeah. like, I'm not the first one to say this, right? This, um, so a lot of this stuff I've actually learned more from the side of radical feminists. Um, and so the radical feminist movement is ha- is up in arms against it. It's just, it's shouted down um, pretty significantly. Um, but I mean, it's woman face, right? Like that's what it is. Well, right? Exactly. And, and I would, I, yeah. I, guys listening, just listen to do it in reverse. Some woman who decided to become a man who then uh, turned you know, beefed up to all this beef fake fake muscles. All right. And then uh, put on a Mohawk haircut, walked around smashing beer cans against their forehead and stuff like, you know, with a shotgun in their right arm and a dead possum hanging out their rear end. You know that 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 that's what it means to be a man. All right. And and you think, well, wait a minute. No, I don't hunt, you know, and I don't smash beer cans on my head. I don't care for possum meat. And, and, you know, and I have no muscles. So, yeah, yeah, it's offensive. It really is. I mean, it is really interesting how the trans movement or trans ideology has, I mean, it, it essentially runs to, and I do mention this in the Church Life Journal article, it, it, it essentially reverts to like 1950s stereotypes about like what it means, idealize, you know, idealize yeah. what it means to be a man or a woman. I mean, it's not even like, you know, okay, um, well, kind of fuller expressions of of femininity or whatever. But like to be a woman is to you know put on pumps and pearls and you know makeup basically, and yeah, that's what it is to be a woman. Actually, I like that pumps and pearls. That's a nice alliteration. <laughs> that, that's what it means to be a woman: pumps and pearls. Uh, anyway, well, that leads. That's a nice segue into the yes. next part of your article, which is that. There were three approaches to this question of gender and what gender is and whether or not the gender binary of male, female, because that's that's what's really at stake here. Right. The the, the old fashioned gender binary, there's there's a man and there's a woman. And that's that is precisely if, if gender is a construct. Now, not only do the categories of male and female become fluid, and self-defining and, and but then there can be a multiplicity of genders okay it's not just like you you see some forms now it says you know, check your gender and it's like 37 things long and then right. there's a space down below but it says other please explain <laughs> it's like okay well you got 10 minutes i can write a lot all right so okay so that's that's the bigger question here so there are three approaches to this question of whether or not there's a gender binary that you outline in your church life article that you say are insufficient now i have to admit woefully wildly insufficient as you said in the article and i took great offense at that because 
Uh, no, actually, I didn't. But <laughs> I, 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 I was a little bit uh, embarrassed because I was reading your first category and I realized, well, I fall into that first category. Uh, viewers will understand what I mean here when you when you go and peruse all of my various videos and interviews and notice that I have never really, I don't think, ever done a video on this topic before. And it's because for me, this is your category number one that you find insufficient. And after reading your article, <laughs> I agree. And that is why are we even talking about this? <laughs> All right. Yeah. There's men and there's women, and that's painfully obvious and right. so on. And I will just add this uh, to you, you don't bring it up in the article, but I to, to sort of steel man the why are we even talking about this argument? The blurb on the back of this book on metaphysics generated by Michelle Schumacher by Abigail Favale says something really interesting about this book, and it makes me want to read it which is that she says that what uh, Schumacher does is to prove uh, or to show that the problem with the whole gender identity movement, the denial of the binaries, is that it following Sartre and existentialism, it destroys the fact that essence precedes existence. And one of the reasons why we have this Catholic worker farm here, one of the things we try to do spiritually when people come here is, and I think this is the value of back to the land ism is that there, there is no way that you can run a farm and not understand that essence precedes existence. There just isn't. Okay. Uh, and, and so I think that is at the root of my belief. Why are we even talking about this? There's men, there's women. That's that essence precedes existence. But now I understand that's a little simplistic. So why don't you unpack, and I agree with you, it's simplistic. Why, why don't you unpack a little bit why that is, even though you express sympathy with that point of view, why it ultimately is insufficient? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for mentioning that right at the end, because in fact, I say like, this is the one I'm most sympathetic to. Yeah, you do. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, like for a long time, um, again, like I, I don't consider myself an expert. I don't consider myself this. I don't consider this to be like my main like area, but for a long time, I sort of resisted ever getting into this, right. Pre precisely because, um, because of this, but I, I mean, in a certain sense, um, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but like I wrote that art, that church life article, or at least the first draft of it in like a fit of rage. Cause I was like, so angry at all the dumb stuff that I was seeing about, about this <laughs> discussion and this discourse. Oh, Rachel, <laughs> man, there is nothing better than rage writing. Come on. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, yeah, as you kind of just said, right. Like, you know, you just want to take, these gender ideologues outside and sort of like gesture to the world and be like, what, what the hell do you see? Right. Like, you, you know, yeah, like with, like, with mean, Descartes, with Descartes deconstructing, whether or not there's a really real world right, out there. Exactly. Hey, take right, a look right, at that tree, dude, and tell, yeah. <laughs> run your car into it right. and then tell me it's not real. <laughs> and then, and then the, again, like, I mean, and I, I think I do refer to Descartes in the article, right? Like once he you destroys do. the world, once he destroys the world, like, when something is so self-evident, how, how do you argue for it, basically, right? Like, um, that it's it seems you, you just kind of like want to stare at the person and be like, what the hell are you talking about, right? Um, so, so the, yeah, so I, I have a lot of sympathy for, for this, like, why are we even talking about this? But I think in, in the article, what I say is, it seems to me that we are being called to think about it, right? Like that, um, and by we, I sort I mean, what I really mean is the church, right? Um, and I, I mean, in a certain way, everybody, but 
but I, what I mean is the church, those of us who wish to think with and in the church, um, you know, Balthazar says this, De Lubac says this, right, that um, kind of with modernity um, degrading, the church is the one left having to defend nature in a way that the church has never had to defend nature. It's just always that's been sort of taken for granted. Right. Um, and I don't mean nature, like going out into the woods, like, like sort of like ecological crisis nature. I no, just you mean, mean like our metaphysical essences, our nature, yes, the, 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 exactly. the, the, the idos of things. Right. Or, or even the, the Pegian uh, mystique uh, of, of culture and, and, and the things within it. The fact is, is that, and that I, I very much like this part of your article because I'm reading the sitting there. Well, I wonder, too, why are we even talking about this? But you raised the very valid point, which is, well, the fact is people are raising the issue and they're raising it in real world ways, in real world yeah. ways that matter and yeah. that people are taking it very seriously, rightly or wrongly. They're taking it very seriously and they're, they are laying down a challenge, a deep challenge to the churches, the traditional Christian classical view of, of the gender binary. And I think one reason why you're right, we have to take a look at this, is because the issue of gender binary is simply the tip of a much larger metaphysical exactly. iceberg about right. nature. So as you just brought about nature as such, you know, every era of the church has to confront the error of its age, as your uh, friend Daniel Mahoney says, the idol of its yeah. age. All right. Uh, and 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 the fact uh, the fact is, is that the idol of our age is precisely this monstrous, radical runaway existentialism and, and combined with naturalism that that feels that nature is ultimately something like an artifice, a fungible right. thing, this ultimately plastic thing. And that we get to, in a sense, define what the heck it means now. Uh, and this is a deep challenge. So we do have to take a look at it. Maybe uh, maybe they're right. OK, that's your last category. We'll get to that one later. But anyway, I'm jabbering too much. Go ahead. Yeah. I, no, I mean, you you put it very well. And and so, I mean. The it seems to me that the this question of sexual difference or gender, however you want to put it right, um, is um as you just said, right, like a tip of an iceberg, right? And in a certain way, it's sort of the most pointed expression of the crisis of reality that we have, right? Does, is reality intrinsically meaningful um, or not, right? Does reality have an order of which biology is expressive or not, right? And if, if bio, you know, um, a lot of people, not necessarily in the church, although I've seen this, um, within kind of Catholic discussion of this, of these issues is they, they um, basically just have recourse to biology, right? They're like XXXY, right? Like that's, that's it. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as if biology is the, like um, the kind of last word on the subject, but the, the problem is what it seems to me, at least what, what, people who use that as their kind of last um, stop against this, against gender ideology is what they don't see it is that no biology, if, if biology is in fact meaningful, right? If you can say something like, well, males have um, small gametes and, and females have, have larger gametes, that's pretty much it, right? Like 
what you're what you are implicitly having recourse to is that biology is expressive of a metaphysical order that means something right and that is worth preserving and noticing and caring for right but if you don't think that who gives a shit right like who who gives a shit that like males are xx and females are xy or males have small gametes yeah. and females have have large gametes and so one of my yeah because the ultimate in, question go ahead go ahead I'm well, sorry, go like ahead. yeah one of my issues is um in the in this kind of discourse and especially in defending the the um the set the gender binary when it's defended on the basis of biology alone it's not enough it's it's just not enough and and you can see that it's exactly in, in how right this, yeah because because the deal is this the deeper the, the the what we need to understand is how radical the nihilistic assumptions are yes. Of modernity. Yeah. This is what I'm on about all the time, as the Brits say. He's on about, <laughs> oh, that chap is on about nihilism all the time. Because here's the deal you can scream till you're blue in the face. Uh, chromosomes, chromosomes, genes, gametes, uh, sex, sex, sex. And that's what gender. The fact is, a modern person, a truly modern, <laughs> really modern person, is going to ask the question well, why is any of that normative? Right. Why is any of that binding? And why right. is that so? Why is biology destiny and so all defining in this way that you want to make it? And, and, and so we have to go even deeper and say, okay, there's sex, but what is there a metaphysical reality that sexual differentiation is pointing us towards and is grounded in? Because if right. it isn't grounded, and this is your point, I think, if it isn't grounded in a deeper metaphysical reality, then ultimately it's 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 no more significant than the right. biological mechanism of, that causes me to sneeze. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I mean, biology only matters if it's expressive of a higher reality, essentially, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and I think a lot of people miss that about this conversation and it's i think it's also why the people who are trying to defend the sex binary against the gender ideologues they they legitimately can't understand why this evidence right this sort of biological evidence can't doesn't convince the gender ideologues in any way right like they're just like they're just like but i'm showing you that like that sexual differentiation has been around for probably at least a billion years, right? I mean, which is true, right? It's 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 a it's a question a billion or two billion actually, right? Which obviously there's a big difference, but still, let's just go with the the shorter time span, a billion years, right? A billion years ago, sexual differentiation came onto the evolutionary scene, right, on the biological scene, and 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 they use they they say all these things and they and they clarify all these facts and. Right. And and they even go into like because a lot of times the gender ideologues like to use people who are who are considered, quote unquote, intersex. And 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 even then, right there, like you can sort of show there's there's really no such thing like somebody's a man or somebody's a woman, although with some abnormalities. Right. And and the gender ideologues just do not care. Right. And I and I actually think that's a I mean, obviously, I, I don't agree with the gender ideologues, but I think that is um, a the, the weight or the fault lies a little bit with the people who think that just clarifying biology is going to, to convince them, right? And it's not. Um, and, and, and so that's why we have this, what Aristotle, I think, would, would call like an impasse, right? Like th that, that yeah. they're sort of talking past each other, actually. And, and so. not only that, 
oh gosh, there's so many things floating in my head right now. Number one, the tip of a much bigger metaphysical iceberg. Uh, this goes to the this goes to the heart, therefore, that, that why you think this option number one is insufficient. But people are raising the issue. We have to take a look at is 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 that there's no substitute for good metaphysical and theological and philosophical argumentation. The church has for 2000 years seen tremendous value in the articulation of deep metaphysical and theological principles. But we run the risk of an ossification that refuses to address modern questions in the same way. If we doggedly stick to the Thomistic synthesis all by itself in its particular medieval iteration, and I, right. I'm very pro Thomas. I'm very pro Aquinas and Thomism. But even the best Thomas and Thomas Aquinas himself would say, yeah, you have to take these principles and you've got to rethink them and rethink them and rethink them in the light of all the provocations that come after. So let me, let me use two examples of, of why you cannot you cannot get away with not doing metaphysical thinking and theological thinking, women's ordination and contraception. Mm-hmm. OK, I accept mm-hmm. both of those teachings as doctrines of the church. I think they are both irreformable doctrines of the church. I think that they should never change and will never change. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have millions and millions of Catholics continually asking the question every generation over and over and over again, why can't we have women priests? And and the reason why they're going to keep asking those questions isn't merely cultural. It's because, quite frankly, the theological apparatus that the church has brought forward to explain why we can't have women priests isn't entirely satisfactory. Okay, it doesn't really answer all of the objections. And once again, I rush in to say I support the church's teaching here. But you made a point in your article about the willingness to accept aporia a sort of open-endedness, that, that, that some questions, that the church needs to become comfortable with sitting with an open question. Not that we're going to ordain women someday, that's not what's open, but the theological explanation of it kind of remains open. Similarly with contraception, I, I think one of the reasons why John Paul II developed the theology of the body was precisely because he was aware that the theological and philosophical apparatus that undergirded Humanae Vitae was very thin and that it had convinced very few, okay? And that the church was still in great need of deeper and better arguments as to why contraception is immoral. Now, I segue to our discussion today about gender stuff. I I concur with you one million percent that the, the advantage now of, number one, being willing to just hold things in an openness if we have no ready-made answer, but also to realize, realize this, that in answering the question of gender, and then further down the road, answering the question of why not women priests and why not contraception, we are going to discover metaphysical and theological truths that make those teachings far more rich, far more profound than they ever were before. We're going to discover new truths. Yeah, I think that, and I actually think contraception is a is a great example of that. I mean, because as you just said, like, I mean, it seems clear to me that Paul the Six, in in the best sense of this word, had an intuition, and he was absolutely correct. I mean, even the fact that he he went with the minority, you know, rather than yeah. than the majority report, right? And and now I actually think like we we again meaning the church, we have learned so much more. So much more because of that, right? Ab- about our kind of philosophical and theological anthropology. John Paul II absolutely, um, you know, in a certain way was 
was one of the the best to do that. But I, but I actually think like the church itself, right, has come together and um, and again, like and as I say in the article, this is like not a new thing for the church to do, right? Like the early church knew that Jesus was was God and that Jesus was man, right? Like and how the hell that worked, like what that meant, right? I mean, it it's it took us, um, you know, if we we yeah. could say, you know, three hundred twenty five years to to, yeah. to kind of come up with even a little bit of a, an understanding of what, what that meant. Right. And I mean, in some ways we're still working that out. Right. Um, but, but to be able to sort of, for the church to be able to say there absolutely is, a, which by the way, I, I, I really think Pope Francis has done this, right. He's called gender ideology, like from the devil more or less. Right. Um, but the church basically had like to, for it to say like, yes, there absolutely is a difference between man and woman, man and woman that one can't become the other, and that this difference is significant, but we might not be able to say everything about it yet, right? I, is I think um, that's also it's important to to have that kind of patience, right? I mean, the church doesn't think in years or even decades sometimes, right? The, yeah, the church yeah. thinks in in centuries, right? Well, I'm thinking, so, yeah, uh, you know, and this cuts this cuts uh, against the grain of conservatives as well as it does with, with progress. I mean, progressives are all pro- progressive Catholics are all on board the, the alphabet train, the alphabet soup train, but even the conservatives who oppose the alphabet soup train are doing. So I think for reasons associated with your reason, number one, which is insufficient. Why are we even talking about this? Aquinas settled this 800 years ago. So let's, mo- let's just move on. But I think, even though I have a certain sympathy with that view that it's, it's a missed opportunity essentially. And it's also, I think this is, I think this is like, I mean, I'm not a Balthazar scholar, but it seems to me, this is the type of like when he wrote raising the bastions, right. This is, this is precisely the type of thing that he was is kind of talking about. Right. It's not that yeah. you become the world, but like to take the world's question seriously, it seems to me is precisely what the church is supposed to do, right? And and in doing so, becoming the guardian of, of nature, right? Um, that the church ha- absolutely has to take on that task at this point, right, in her existence. Yeah, and, it, well, and it's going to involve suffering. We don't want to make, and, and Balthazar was well aware of that, right? When yes. you go out into the world to, to, in a sense, engage the world, engagement with the world, uh, you're going to take their questions seriously, but then you're going to Christianize those questions and and and, and transform them in C.S. Lewis's language in an act of transposition into an incarnational logic. You're going to meet right. resistance. You know, you might be very and, and danger, right? And danger. Yeah. It's also a dangerous yeah. thing. And and I think yeah. I have a footnote in that article about the danger. Like I don't want to. Yeah, you lose doubt- your career, lose your job. It's a white martyrdom of loss of job, loss of income. Yeah. But or even I, I wasn't thinking of that, although that is also the case, but I was actually thinking of the date like it feels dangerous to kind of like go out into the world because you're like, well then like I could get confused, right? Or or oh, like, I see what I you could, mean, yeah. I, you know, like I could lose the track, right? Like and and again, um I in the article I pointed to the early church again, it's like the church kept the question open. And all sorts of, you know, heresies were popping up trying to, like, solve the question really, really hastily, right? Like, well, this is how it works with Jesus being both God and man, right? Like, he's half and half or, right, yeah. God made yeah. him before all creation and then raised him up. You know, like, so, like, and or so he's not really God. He's mostly God, but not God. God. <laughs> 
mostly. Not God, God. He's most, that's the Aryan Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's right. He's, <laughs> he's mostly God, but not God. God. So, but, you know, and so, so there is a, I mean, I, I understand the um, reticence to keep the question open, right? Because you're like, no, 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 like that, that could lead people down the wrong path, right? Which, like, I think historically we have to admit, like, that's, there is, there is a danger of that, right? Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, it's, it's why I think the question needs to be asked. But it reminds me, you know, C.S. Lewis, to quote him again, said that the, the danger of the evangelizer, the person that goes out, the Christian goes out to engage the world, is that you are making yourself vulnerable. Because to encounter the world and to understand it, you have to have a certain connatural feel for it, a certain empathy for it, a certain compassion for it. Uh, that isn't simply triumphalistic condescension. I'm right. You're wrong. Here's the truth. I'm going to toss a catechism at your face. Now, right. if, you, if you reject Christ now, you're going to go to hell. That's no, right. no. Uh, you're living in what, what Romano Guardini called the threshold or, or, or what some philosophers call the, the metaxu, the metaxi. Right. You know, that that realm of the in-between. And that's a scary place to be because yeah. and that's where we participate in the cross of Christ. Because we suffer, we suffer vicariously what everyone in the world is going through by taking right. it into ourselves and transforming it in the cauldron of our own thinking about these things. And that is a massive vulnerability. Yeah, but it's I mean, in a certain way, it like it just follows what what Christ did. Right. Like that. Yeah. It's, and and so the, and I think the the gender thing is particularly scary precisely because it attacks human nature and even like nature itself, right? Human nature insofar as it's, um, you know, the apex of all of nature, right? At such a deep root um, that you're sort of like, I don't want to touch that. Like, I, like I, you know. Yeah. Well, you all. pointed out, you pointed out in the article that, that why is it that people get so upset by this issue? Get unbelievably angry and upset or even fearful. And that's because it's, we don't know the answer really. And it's, and yet it cuts right to the core of who we are. Yeah. Yeah. I love that thought experiment you give it. Cause I had never thought of it. Just try to imagine yourself having been born a different gender. I mean, a different sex, you know, right. The different sex gender, however you want to call it. Right. If I had been born a woman, first off, I'd be a really ugly woman. <laughs> Cause I'm an ugly dude. Um, although my daughter looks just like me and she's very pretty. So I guess I should have been a woman in that regard. <laughs> Kind of an, an ugly dude, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's the word. I'm joking about it because it's almost impossible to conceive. Yeah, yeah, and again, like this is where thinking about the trans movement, even though like I absolutely think it's one of the most dangerous ideologies to ever emerge, um, for for various reasons, not least yeah. of which what it's doing yeah. to children. But it's so like on a meta level, so interesting, right? Um, because just the fact that trans people have what they call a dead name, right? Like when they when yeah. they um, transition, right? They'll say, they'll take on a new name and they'll have a dead name. And so what they're effectively sort of saying is, right? That they're not, right? The same person that they haven't always been, right? Oh, they haven't always felt like a woman or, or something right, like that, right, right? right? That they're actually saying, like, I have to be a new being in order to be, right, a, a woman. I, mostly, I just, I think, mostly. But is, I think that, uh, is that not ultimately kind of incoherent in one oh, sense? 
It's because absolutely you're, say, incorrect. you're saying there is this great fluidity to gender and I get to make it up as I wish. But then you're saying I have to have a dead name because I've essentialized these characteristics to such exactly. an extent that I can't even think of, of of who I was before I transitioned. I was a right. non-entity before I transitioned because the very essence of who I was wasn't really me. That is really bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, though, it's so interesting because you can point out the logical inconsistencies of trans ideology, like till you're blue in the face. Right. Um, but or even to gender gender ideology. And those two aren't exactly the same, but they overlap. Right. Um, but again, when you're pointing out when one is pointing out logical inconsistencies in these ideologies, <clears throat> what you are assuming is that the person on the other side cares about logical inconsistencies, right? And they don't, because again, yeah. right, to care about a logical inconsistency is at root to sort of say, oh, there's such a thing as truth and like I should be consistent with it, right? Um, and 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 so as you you stated earlier, right, um, it, there's, a, there's a lack of recognition of, of just how deep the nihilism goes, it seems to me, which is one of the things I was trying to draw attention to in that, in that article. Yeah, and you did. So let's move on quickly to the, this in a, a very good article, too. I want to repeat to people because a number, another one reason why it's a good article is it's eminently readable. Uh, oh, thanks. Yes, yeah, very well written. Anyway, so reason number two that you find insufficient, we've already kind of dealt with it, but let's deal with it systematically, which is that, uh, you know, uh, we, we know what there is a gender binary and we can we can know that it's because we're going to fix all of these basic fundamental categories of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. All of these that, as it turns out, are kind of stereotypically masculine and feminine characteristics that are drawn from the American 1950s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, like I say in the article and I already said here, right, it, it's it's such a bizarre phenomenon to me that the trans movement has essentially latched on to this kind of stereotyping, right? It, yeah, it's very interesting. But yeah, I mean, in defense of the gender binary, I like the second sort of approach to the discourse or approach to the question of the question of gender um, is uh, um, an approach that basically, um, hold on for a second. Um, okay, so is an approach that basically says like, you know, um, men are men because they're like big and they don't care about things and they have no feelings and, you know, like they they're stoic, hate, as you said early, right? Strong and, and stoic. Then, yes. And then women are women because, you know, pumps and pearls, right? Like, um, yeah. but but like, as I say in the article, like at the moment you def one defends the gender binary that way. I mean, and, and it is the moment. Right. Somebody is like, well, I know this person and I like that person's not like that. Right. And and um, and I think it's you know, that's a really legitimate thing. Right. Like to defend the the gender binary in terms of characteristics. Right. Is probably um, is is almost to sort of basically concede the argument. Right. Right. Because well, if it's just. Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. Not, and not only that, when you when you hold hard and fast to those stereotypes, you're actually feeding right into the transgender exactly. movement because exactly. for example if that's what a man is well uh, when i was growing up uh i knew all uh, i knew all kinds of young guys who were very effeminate they weren't gay but they were very effeminate guys and yet i would still say well that's that's a dude that's a guy he got a thing 
And that thing is what makes him a, a guy, a dude. Right. And, and and so he might be effeminate. And I, my sister, my young sister, for example, my younger sister, she was a tomboy. And I knew all these tomboys in the neighborhood. But these days now, oh, oh, wow, they're misgendered. That little tomboy out there is actually really a, a really a, a man, a, really a boy. Yeah. And that yeah. very, very effeminate boy over there who hates baseball and instead loves to cook and wonder, well, he's he's a girl. Right. You know, and that's because the stereotypes. Right. Yeah. So it, that's really horrific. I think a better way, because on the one hand, like, like in order to defend or start or at least start thinking about the gender binary, you do have to start with just like your experience of the world. Right. Like and and you know, to go back to Socrates, like, that's where he starts, right? Like, always, he's like, okay, like, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, we have to at least consider opinion or what, what most people think, right? That's where you start, and then you kind of get deeper. And so, right, um, rather than defending that we're starting to think about the gender binary in terms of um, characteristics, and, and specifically stereotypical characteristics, it seems to me a better starting place is to notice that throughout all of human history, there has been a difference between the sexes and the way the sexes work and operate in societies, right? Now that those differences have changed from culture to culture. So I think the one I mentioned in the um, in the article is like hair length, right? Like it men, it, it wasn't always the case that men had short hair, right? But like the way that men and women dealt with hair truly has always differed, right? In, in different yeah. societies. Right. Like women, most of the time would have it under some something. Right. But um, it's always it's always differed or like or even clothing has always differed. Now, again, like men, like men used to wear something that we would sort of call skirts or like dresses or something like that. But it has always been different. And so rather than looking at like characteristics or stereotypes, it seems to me looking across cultures and seeing, wow, every culture until now has that has ever existed has recognized a difference in some way shape or form right that's a place to start it seems to me right that every culture yeah, has recognized yeah. that, that, that every culture has recognized that there are gender differences yes they've yeah. defined them differently stereotyped them differently or whatever but they all of the various stereotypes were an attempt to express to capture somehow the fact that there is a difference here that exactly. the, these things are not the same. Uh, and so I think that that's a good point. But it does show that the argument from masculine and female stereotype to characters is not really a good argument for arguing in favor of, of the gender binary. Now, the third argument that you find insufficient is one that's uh, in favor of kind of transgender ideology, or at least sympathetic to it, that would say, well, heck, maybe these gender people got it right. Maybe there's something right. to all this, you know, um, you know, maybe we're going through a veritable age of reason, like the one they had. In France. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that one basically is so that approach is so ready to throw out literally millennia of, of, of human sort of knowing. Right. Um, yeah. And like, again, the fact that like cultures have always recognized a difference. And so, the moment says the moment someone says, and again, I'll, a gender ideologue says, "Oh, there is no difference." Then, and somebody's like, "Oh yeah, maybe you're right." It, that also just seems way too simple. Like, wait a second, you're going to throw out literally millennia of of our of yeah. human knowing 
because somebody puts this into question. And Not only that, and, and we're dancing around in abstractions, but you alluded to it earlier. There are some real world consequences here that are just downright evil, like the, yes. sur the surgical mutilation of children, the chemical yes. mutilation of children uh, yes. in the name of this ideology, or people even losing their jobs if they don't hold up to this ideology. Women's sports about to be completely destroyed by this ideology uh, and so on. So, yeah. So the. Well, the, that's yeah. That, I mean, that's, I think I, I also say, I mean, I wrote that article, what is it like three years ago now? Um, yeah. And, and what's, you know, what's sort of insane is like, it's gotten even worse since then, right? And, um, and, and the consequences are coming so quickly. And keep so talking. What, what, I'm going to be right. Keep talking. I can hear. <laughs> okay. What started as a, like, oh, let's just be kind to these people, Right like is now i mean is now sort of taking over every aspect of our lives and having all of these consequences that i mean i i, I had a friend i had a conversation a couple of years ago with a friend about the transgender stuff and and she was sort of like she was like no they're not really w women but like you know they just don't feel right in their bodies and let's just kind of like accommodate right um and then i i mentioned um women's sports and she she said oh i mean that's just it'll never happen like it like it's just that's not it's not possible it'll never become a a, a problem in women's sports and i was like oh, well i hope you're right but i don't think you are yeah. <laughs> and, and then and then recently we talked again about it and and she was like i i just i didn't think it was possible that we could deny reality that much but again like once you once you put that into question by saying by even like in some way accommodating the fact that man can become woman or woman can become man, then reality just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter anymore. Right. Like the order of reality yeah. doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. No, so, it's, it's essentially a very Gnostic thing too, that disengages the spirit side of me from the material side of me. Yes. In a lot of ways. So that goes to the metaphysical question of what all this is. Okay. So, uh, so that my listeners and viewers are not held ultimately in, in total suspense. I, I, I need to acknowledge <laughs> that at the end of Rachel's article, she reaches no firm and hard decision <laughs> about what, now, obviously Rachel's an Orthodox Catholic. She believes what the church teaches. She believes there is a gender binary <laughs> that is grounded in something real and something metaphysical. But her point is simply that she hasn't completely worked out what that metaphysical uh, thing is. Now that the article was written three years ago, almost exactly three years ago. Has your thinking progressed now to, uh, you know, for example, I know that the late David L. Schindler, had written a great deal about von Balthasar's theology of the Trinity in which, and Balthasar and Schindler are both heavily criticized for this. They introduced gendered language into the Trinitarian relations. And, and, and yet what Balthasar was attempting to do is exactly what you're saying we should be doing, which is he was trying to think through the full significance of human gender uh, and the fact that the scriptures use gendered language for God uh, and, and what all this might mean in the terms of a relational concept of the Trinity and so on. So what do you you said you're not a Balthazar scholar, and I get that. but You are somewhat familiar with the thought of David L. Schindler. What do you think of those kinds of efforts? Uh, and and what is where is your own thinking on this at, at this point? Yeah. So um, Adrian 
Walker and I wrote an article, gosh, a long time ago now, in Comunio called The Saving Difference. Um, called what? The Saving Difference. Oh, The Saving um, Difference. Okay, yes, yeah. The Saving Difference. And um, it was kind of short, and, and it wasn't like, you know, a full treatment of the subject but it was it it we we were essentially calling the sexual difference the saving difference and so what we meant by that i think um is um is that if the, that the sexual difference so one of one of the things that it points to is that that there really is equality without um, being the same, actually, right? And and so um, that you don't need, um, how do I wanna put this? So in a question, I think it's 45 of the Summa, when, so this is on the treatise on creation, Thomas says that um, he's, the, one of the questions is why, why is there multiplicity in creation? Right. Like what, why did God yeah. need to make all this different stuff? Basically diversity and multiplicity. Yeah. And why Thomas do we need says, roses if we have daisies? Come and get with <laughs> right. Yeah. And Thomas answers, you know, and obviously I don't know it verbatim, um, but um, basically that God, like one created thing cannot glorify God. Right. Or cannot, cannot image God's glory, I should say. Right. In, um, and so in a certain sense, all of creation is necessary to image God, right? And even then it's insufficient, right? But it seems to me what that points us to is the fact that um, creation is not like a, a competition, right? That in fact, like the diversity of creation points us to the fact that like everything can image God in its own privileged way, actually, right? And I, I think that um, that truth gets safeguarded like um really really well in the sexual difference actually because precisely because right like human beings are always faced with another who is both like and unlike them actually right and so like i am you know i'm obviously i'm looking at my computer but i'm you know virtually sitting across from you and i it it sort of makes me realize that i i i don't encompass everything there is to be about a human being but that that's not that doesn't mean i then lack something right um and so i actually think like that to a, a certain degree the sexual difference is a safe it's again to use adrian and i phrase like the saving difference right it makes us realize that life isn't a war of like all against all in order to have like the top spot essentially right that yeah, actually yeah. right to 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 have another right, who is both like and unlike oneself, right, is a constant reminder that, right, one doesn't encompass everything there is, right, which is, I mean, another way to put that is, it's a constant reminder that one is not God, actually, right, um, and I think that, you know, like, the argument, the sort of, I think, to straw, to steel man the argument, it would be like, well, if we were all just, like, like, if there was no such thing as sexual difference, really, like you still have to face other people and realize you're not God. But I, I think that the kind of like unbridgeable chasm that sometimes the sexes feel when having to deal with each other, yeah. right. Is, is like a, is a much more um, 
uh, it's a much stronger reminder of that fact. Okay, right? that's yeah, that's an argument from otherness, and it's an argument from pluralism, and and right. which creates. I mean, love is at a distance, and 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 the, the essence of love is that it bridges that distance in in the relational aspect of of human personhood. Why does that then therefore necessarily limit the difference to two? Mm. I think because I mean I don't know for sure. Let me just. Um, but my initial answer is I'm just anticipating what the argument would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've Uh, just made an argument for kaleidoscopic rainbow world. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I think. I think to. Because it's God and creation, right? So the, the kind of. Divine mismatch that, um, men and women are right, is an image of, right, the sort of the unbridgeable gap between God and creation, right? And that's not to say man equals God and woman equals creation. And like, I think that's over simple, right? Um, You know, uh, I think that it's actually the divine mismatch that man and woman are is actually to, um, to sort of constantly remind us that there is this there's this divide between ourselves yeah, and God. Yeah. Uh, and, and I also think that even though the very first position, why are we even talking about this? There's male, there's female. That's the end of it. You know, there's biologically speaking and therefore gendered wise, even though that's insufficient as a total answer, the fact is our bodies mean something. Yes. And, and it's one of the reasons why I would say, despite, it were complementing the argument you just gave about otherness and relationality and imaging God in a, in a multiple, in multiple ways. The fact is God has implanted into the, into the formational economy of this world. And it's a robust formational economy, uh, a, a very clear biological differentiation, like he's maybe starting a billion years ago or whatever, despite some atypical, forms of asexuality in the animal world. The vast, 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 vast majority of animals going way back a billion years have been differentiated into male and female. That must mean something. That really must mean something. And in order to avoid a kind of Gnostic flight from the body, I I, I ultimately do think that the argument from biology has to carry some weight as we think about this metaphysically as to why, why there are only two genders. It's because yeah. there are only two biological sexes. And even though one can't, one doesn't want to reduce one to the other in a slavish way, and biology doesn't completely give us the full metaphysics of this, biology has to play a role in this. Yes. I also, can I address, you, you brought up um, yeah. Balthazar and, and Big Dave. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. again, I, I'm not a, a, a Trinitarian scholar, um, at all. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I know, I'll just say, I know that a lot of people um, criticize Balthazar on this score, right? And and also yeah. um, Dave Schindler, but I, and again, I see why, right? Because it can be kind of dangerous, right? Like you can sort of, you sort of are like, wait, are you ascribing like sex to God? Meaning like, you know, and yeah. because people do go in really strange directions with it. Um, but 
on the one hand, um, well, not on the one hand, uh, number one, there's a lot of precedent for it in the church, right? Like the, the, um, the church fathers have, have always talked about, you know, what we might say that nuptial mystery, right? In terms yeah, of nuptial imagery. Yeah. yeah. Without, without, without ever thinking that they were crossing some sort of like weird, gross boundary actually. Right. It was All like, right. For and them, so, was... yeah, we need to make a distinction between what they were doing and what say, you know, a, a Cardinal Fernand, an early a Cardinal Fernandez was doing in the 1990s, writing these crazy books on erotic sex and so on. Right. But number two, it also seems to me to your point about biology, right. If, if what was the phrase you used? The formational economy. A ro robust formational robust, economy. Yeah. Yes, right. If if we are going to say that biology is expressive of metaphysics, or which is how I put it, right, or a metaphysical order, right, mm -hmm. um, then it can't be that God placed this stuff in creation for us not to know Him through it, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 because again, if if Thomas is right, which I think he is, right, that that every aspect of creation Im for, like images God in some kind of privileged way, like in a way that nothing else can, right, then that has to be true of, of the sexual difference as as well. Um, yeah. It seems to me. Well, so. especially if 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 the differentiation into into various biological sexes is expressive of God's positive will. And in a sense, I think it is as an analogical point of contact with, with something, some perfection in the divine nature is, right. is, is going to stir us to metaphysical, theological deepening of our thinking on these issues, because the other alternative is, is, is would be that of gender theory, which is to treat it all exactly. as the epiphenomenal flotsam and jetsam of evolutionary byways and highways that ultimately means nothing, absolutely right. nothing. Exactly. Uh, and, and so I, I really don't think there's a middle path there. We, we either we either take gender as in some sense grounded in biology that spurs us to deeper metaphysical and theological thinking, or we go the other route of it's just epiphenomenal. Yes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the last thing I'll say about what, I mean, just in my thought, and this is very nascent for me um, about sexual difference is in addition to, in a certain way, imaging God and like the difference between God and creation. Um, I, I also wonder if it images in some way, you know, you talked about essence and existence, right? Like it actually does image in some way the difference between essence and existence, right? If we want to talk about a metaphysical order that biology is expressive of. And again, this is not to say that like man lines up with existence and woman lines up with essence, like, you know, exactly or yeah, something like yeah, that, right? Yeah, but just right. that there is a difference that, that we are all composed, that to be a creature is to be composed, right? Again, to, to use Thomistic language, right? To, to be a creature, even an angel, right? Is to be composed, right? And, and so that, like, it is, the, the sexual difference is a biological expression or image of that compositional nature of all of creation, right? I, I, I sort of wonder about right. that, too. So, no, I think, yeah. I think that's a, a very, very good insight, that as creatures, we are composite realities. Uh, and, and therefore, there's nothing wrong with saying 
that the differentiation of male and female on a gendered level represents a complementarity. I, I, I mean, we're constantly criticized from from you know the progressives for using the language of complementarity. They see that as e- you know, the separate but equal days of not right. equal, not equal at all. Uh, and complementary is just code for keeping women in their place uh, in these essentialized kind of stereotyped sort of frameworks. But that's not true at all. And, 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 and it goes back to, in a sense, a certain intuition. So Paul VI had an intuition about contraception. Well, I think a lot of Catholic thinkers simply have an intuition that there is something deeply, profoundly, theologically, metaphysically significant about the complementarity of the sexes which I think ultimately is going to be the answer as to why we don't ordain women. It's nothing to do with their inferiority, sacramentally, anthropologically, or otherwise. But to, to ordain them is to deny some fundamental principle of metaphysical and theological complementarity between the sexes, then maybe we just haven't completely plumbed the depths of that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Right. And again, like this is why also the church isn't just like um it's not simply an abstract or an theory, like in theory thing, right? Like, I mean, I mean, one of the reasons we don't ordain women is because Jesus didn't ordain any women, right? Like the church is a historical reality. It's not just sort of like, you know, a, a reality in here. And then again, right. Our theory or our thinking or however one wants to put it has to in a certain way catch up to right. The reality that we know to be true actually. Yeah, if we believe that Christ gave us the sacraments, not only in concept, but in their matter and their form, and if we believe that gender differences matter and are not simply epiphenomenal, and if we believe that Jesus Christ didn't just make decisions based on the cultural mores of his time, then we need to be led to the conclusion that his adoption of only men into the priesthood uh, is a deliberate choice that constitutes the the matter and form of the sacrament. Yeah. I remember actually um, in my intro to theology class with you. Um, so in my high school religion class, I had heard this argument like that Jesus didn't make a woman an apostle because of like, it would have been too oh, far. Culturally the... unheard of. And, oh, yeah. and you, <laughs> you were like, you were like, yeah, the guy who basically blew up every other cultural moray. <laughs> yeah, would have cared about <laughs> the guy who touched lepers in order to heal them. Right. We just read from Leviticus at church the other day. Right. Lepers are to have to cover their mouth and scream unclean when they went around people and had a big thing on their foreheads. And I'm a leper rending and they their had garments, rending yeah. their garments and they had to live way outside the village. Yeah. Those people. Yeah. Jesus walked up and touched them <laughs> to heal them. Say, hey, dude, you're clean. Or the woman who, with the hemorrhage who touched him, it was ritually unclean. He didn't turn around and say, you know, hey, woman, what are you doing touching me? You just made, he said, who touched me? Okay, woman, but, your faith is made you all. Off she went, talking yeah, to the Samaritan I, woman at the well. And so he broke every moray that there was. Exactly. Right exactly. I was 19 and I was like, oh, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. the idea that... That Jesus chose all men as apostles because he didn't want to upset the sensibilities. Uh, And and there's another point and people have pointed out, too, as long as we're sort of off topic and talk. But we're not. We're talking about gender is that the Roman pagan world had priestesses. Yes. It's not as if the idea of a priestess 
would not right. have ever entered into the mind of Jesus or the other apostles or anything like that. In fact, right. a case could be made out that this is precisely why the priesthood of the Old Testament and then the priesthood of the New Testament was reserved to men, precisely differentiated from the temple prostitution cults, the, the feminization of divinity and so forth that we saw in paganism. Well, and notice, right, in those in those pagan cults, right, or pagan practices that had priestesses, the stark difference between God and the world was not ever observed, actually, which again right. sort of points back to at least one of my intuitions about that the sexual differentiation or sexual difference being representative and, and also then for, therefore reminding us all the time of the difference between Right, God in the well, world. Well, and this, oh, God, this, this is here at the end raises such an important. I, I remember like 30 years ago, I read a book. I wish I could remember the name of the author. It was female. She was an expert in mythology. It's called In the Wake of the Goddesses. And a very small book, but her, she made her, this, this is the point she made uh, that, that the gods and goddesses of the pantheon of the pagan world represented a, the kind of mythopoetic projection into the divine realm of what human beings consider to be the significance of gender differentiation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So she's, she was making your point. Yeah. I mean, from yeah. time immemorial people, and this is long before gender theory, transgender became a thing, but she's saying, you know, yeah, people took gender seriously, so seriously that they interjected it into the very life of the gods themselves. But then she said this, the stereotypical patterns that they interjected into the male gods and the female gods then became these hardened, essentialized things that then society had to conform to. Women had yep. to conform to the gender roles of the goddesses. Men had to conform to the gender roles of, of, of the gods. So the entire thing depended upon the legitimacy of the various gender stereotypes that they were using, which were not really all that great in many instances. And so the very presence of priestesses representative of various goddesses had the kind of effect of keeping women into their sequestered place, which only yep. then goes to argue for the importance now in the Christian dispensation of, okay, we don't have women priests. Fine. I agree with that, but let's think more deeply about why that is and what gender does signify why Jesus did limit it to just men. What is the complementarity of the sexes? What does that mean for our theology of God? And so on. I think we're just, I think we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah. And so, and this is why, despite the danger and despite like, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, despite the danger, it does seem to me that we're also being given an opportunity to think about something that like more deeply than we ever have before. And so in that sense, I'm grateful for it, actually. Yeah. Right. And I, I think we're going to come out on the other side of it whenever that is. I mean, and it's probably you and I will be long dead. Likely. Yeah. Well, um, well so. I know I will be. I'm half dead already. I... Um, but like I will we'll have a much stronger, more robust defense of nature, I think. And and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Ultimately. Well, I think that's true across the board that and so many doctrines of what the crisis the church faces today is that the very thing that's being questioned is. It, by, by the world towards the church is everything. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
everything. Like when the waiter yeah. asked Mr. Creosote in the old Monty Python skit, Mr. Fat old Mr. Creosote, what would you like? Everything. <laughs> One of everything. No, everything. <laughs> okay. So that's what's being questioned here. Mr. Yeah. Creosote's everything. All right. And so we're going to have to weather this storm. But when we yeah. come out the other side, having everything sort of questioned top to bottom, root and branch, it's going to be stronger. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I think I'm going to be dead for that. So, <laughs> Well, I know I will be. And I, I certainly I don't have the energy for all this questioning anymore uh, either, at least anyway. But anyway, it does. It does keep me going. Uh, I think we've sort of now that we're talking Mighty Python, at least. I, <laughs> yes, we probably should draw this to a close. Uh, we've been on for like an hour and 10 or 15 minutes. Hey, Rachel, do you have any last words before we sign off? No, I mean, again, like I just I don't think that this is a women's issue, which is another reason I wrote that article, because a lot of times it's like left to the women to think about. Like, I think this is an everyone issue precisely because of what you just said, right, that it's it's yeah. actually just indicative or representative of the questioning of everything. So. Yeah. Sure is. And if you want to read more, you can look up uh, her article on, on uh, Church Life Journal, or you can go onto the Communia webpage and do an author search and find her article with Adrian Walker on the saving difference. Uh, yes. I think I read that years ago, and I need to go back and, and take a look at that again. All right. Well, thanks, Rachel, for coming on, thanks, Dr. Dr. Coleman. <laughs> so I, I'll never get used to that. But anyway. I think you like saying that more than I. Dr. <laughs> Coleman. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. Bye now.